That brings us back to this is the second section in the final division. It's the thousand-year reign. You've heard it as the millennial reign, but I prefer to call it the thousand-year reign, mostly because I'm a high school teacher, and that's less confusing, and it's not really actually ever called a millennial anything in the Bible, but the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. In this section, Satan is bound in the abyss while Christ rules over creation for a thousand years. At the end of this, Satan is released for his final defeat. Remember, Christ has already come down to earth. Chapter 19, he has come to earth. He has defeated the beast and the false prophet, thrown him in the lake of fire. All the kings and all the armies that um, joined the beast and the false prophet and fought against him, the sword that was in his mouth, which is metaphorical for the word of God, has slain them. And the same way that John uh, records the arrest of Christ, and they say, are you the one who claims to be king of Jews? And Christ says, I am. And it knocks them down in their butt. And the idea is my word has power physically, and I go of my own free will. You do not take me by force. And so this is the same word. All he has to say is whatever he says, and all the armies and all the kings are defeated. The idea is that Christ is now sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, literally and physically on earth over the planet. And all the powerful who chose to go against Christ are dead and gone. So the only people that are left are, my assumption is maybe powerful people who chose not to rebel against them, and all the people who have no power. And those who have not died in the plagues and the judgments. And so that includes believers and non-believers on here, on earth. This is the idea. So now he's going to deal with Satan. Where we were introduced to Satan then the beast and the false prophet and then the woman that rides the beast, Babylon. And so the woman was destroyed, then the beast and the false prophet, and now Satan's going to be dealt with. So he's dealing with them in reverse order that they were revealed in, in Revelation. This is called a chiastic structure where a series of events are repeated again, but in reverse order. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel descending from heaven holding in his hand the key to the abyss, a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and tied him up for a thousand years. The angel then threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it so that he could not deceive the nations until the end, until the 1,000 years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a brief period of time. This vision begins with John seeing an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the abyss. The same abyss that was unlocked in chapter 19, sorry, chapter 9, and all the locust-like demons were released from the abyss. This is the same abyss. That's been unlocked. It was sealed up. Jude tells us and Peter tells us that they were thrown in there during the times of Noah. And maybe others were thrown in there throughout time, but we're not told. And it's just locked up and sealed. And the word sealed there is the same idea as a sealed scroll. Nobody can break it except for the one who sealed it, and that is God. And that that was unlocked and unsealed in chapter 9, and all these demons were released onto the earth to do their thing. And like I said, chapter 9 was the, is the hardest one to say, how does that correspond to reality? Um, everybody, regardless of your view, just struggles with that chapter. And now that abyss is empty, and it's open. And so now an angel is coming, and wrapping Satan up in chains and going to throw him into that open abyss and he's going to lock him in it 
and seal and key it um, and keep them there. But he will be released in a thousand years. And we'll talk about that when we get to the release. We're told that he is the serpent, he is the dragon, he is Satan, he is the devil. Now, some people have said, um, this does not mean that Revelation is saying the serpent in the garden is Satan. If you don't know what I'm talking about that, nowhere does Genesis ever say Satan is the serpent. You can go back to my audio on that. It just says he's a wild animal. He's craftier than all the other wild animals that God created. He crawls on his belly. Satan doesn't crawl on his belly. He will have offspring. Satan doesn't have offspring. Um, it's very clear that we're just talking about a serpent. How did the serpent go bad? I don't know. Did the devil tempt him? Did the devil possess him? Don't know. But we're never set. No Jew ever believed that it was Satan. Nobody really believed that until much later. Some people try to use this passage and say, see, there you go. Revelation says Satan is a serpent. But it doesn't really say that. It just says that the serpent who is also, meaning he's called a serpent, but he's also Satan. That doesn't mean he was literally the serpent. No more than it means that he's also called the dragon, but does that mean that he is every mention of the dragon throughout the Bible? No. In fact, people are sometimes called the dragon. People are called, sometimes called the serpent. It doesn't mean necessarily that God is saying, this is a serpent from the garden. Because nowhere in the Second Testament does the Bible ever say the devil was a serpent in the garden directly. Rather, it's saying is that he is the ultimate embodiment of chaos. All throughout the Bible, the dragon, the serpent, the scorpion, the sea, darkness represent chaos. And so it's saying that the ultimate embodiment of chaos is the devil. And the ultimate power behind chaos is the devil. Therefore, when the ultimate power and embodiment of chaos and evil is thrown in the abyss, then does all chaos and evil disappear? I'll come back to that. So he locks up and he seals them down. This leads us to three major views that Christians take throughout human history. There are diagrams in my notes. You can go to my website. You can download the document or you can just see it on the website. Um, the first view is post-millennialism. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ and people don't know how to interpret it. Is Christ literally reigning on earth for a thousand years? Is it literally a thousand year reign? What's going on here? And so one of these is post-millennialism. And post-millennialism do not believe that Jesus will literally and physically reign on earth or that Satan will be literally be thrown into the abyss for a thousand year period. This does not mean that they do not believe that Christ is coming back to earth at all. They just don't believe that he's literally physically reigning on earth for this thousand years. And that Satan is not literally thrown into the abyss. It's all metaphorical. They believe that the church, not Jesus, establishes the kingdom of Yahweh on earth at the very end of history, right before the second coming of Christ. The tribulation is all of history between the first and second coming of Christ when the church will grow throughout history. Right at the end of human history, the church will become powerful enough that it will literally rule over the nations, establishing peace on earth. Their righteous rule on earth is the binding of Satan, such that he no longer rules over or can deceive the creation. The church's righteous rule on earth will usher in the second coming of Christ, return to earth. Very few hold this view, since there's nothing in Scripture that even hints at Christians ruling over creation or being able to pull off world peace on their own. 
So this is often sometimes called dominionism. And the idea is that the church has become more and more influential throughout history ever since the Holy Spirit came upon us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 of Pentecost. Or sorry, chapter 2. Acts chapter 1, 8 is when Jesus is going to happen. Acts chapter 2 is when it actually happens. That the church has been growing. And they're growing and growing and having more influence. And they're right. There are... Um, Christianity has impacted the world more than any other religion in the entire world. Uh, even Time Magazine, New York New Week's New Week, News Week Magazine agrees on that. They've written multiple. You, you've been around long enough to know there have been multiple issues that have come out. Um, there are books like Dominion, written by um, um, Tom Holland, who is an atheist or not a Christian. Um, Dinesta Shugio, what's so great about Christianity? Uh, books talking about how Christianity has changed the world. For the better, got rid of child slavery, pedophilia, um, all kinds of slavery, all kinds of stuff. Read those, read Dominion, it's great. Um, I'm partway through that one too, but I can say so far it's good. But I read Dinesta Sujia's What's So Great About Christianity. Whatever you think about him, he's got good points in that book. And there are more people who are Christians in the last couple hundred years than all of human history. As the population has increased, so has the number of Christians. And whether you realize it or not, I know America is kind of like going down a little bit, and it's very easy to think end of the world, um, but there are fewer wars and more peace and more high quality of life and health around the world than there has been in any time of human history. I'm not saying everything's great, because we also have more slavery than we have ever had in the world, and da, 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 but... The reality is these are things that you still have to consider. And so they point to these things and they say, see, the church has become more influential. They've become more influential and in, in, in impacting the world. And so one day the church is going to just grow and grow and grow and grow until eventually they literally take over all governments on earth. And they will be all Christians running the governments of the earth. And they will literally bring a utopian peace on earth through the Holy Spirit working through them, and this will then usher in the coming of Christ. And so Christ doesn't come back in chapter 19. He comes back in chapter 21. They would say that 19 is just the church finally exercising its absolute dominion on earth, and that Christ. then they create this thousand-year reign. They rule over all the non-believers and the believers alike, and they establish a perfect reign. And then in chapter 21, Christ comes back. And he takes the throne and he rules. But like I said, very few people take this view, mostly because there's nothing in the Bible about the church ruling the world. And I do not believe we're capable of doing that. And if you've looked at anything, we have been more influential in America than any other country probably. And we are, have seriously lost our influence and respect. It doesn't mean we can't ever, like, come back for an upswing. And I believe in revival. But I believe very, very, very much in the depravity of humanity. The depravity of humanity is a very highly developed theological belief in my system. Maybe more than a lot of people. And I'm not convinced that we can pull off much on our own. And even with the Holy Spirit, we have messed a lot of things up. And I think... It's one of those views where God gets a demotion and humans get a promotion. And I just, it might be right, but I'd rather err on the side of least error. I feel like I am going to say less negative things about Christ, saying post-millennialism is not right, than if I say it is right. 
That's their view. That brings us to the second view, the amillennialist. The amillennialist means all without. They don't believe that there will be a literal thousand-year reign. They don't believe that it's going to happen. They believe that it's metaphorical of the time period that we're in. So they also do not believe that Jesus will literally and physically reign on earth or that Satan will literally be thrown in the abyss for a thousand-year period. They believe that the thousand-year kingdom is symbolic of the present age that we are currently in. It's a recapitulation of everything else. The judgments of the seals is all the time period between the first and second coming of Christ. The trumpets are a recapitulation of that time period. The bowls is a recapitulation of that time period. And the thousand-year reign is a recapitulation of that. So it basically is saying, meanwhile, at the same time that everything you just read in chapters 6 through 19, also this millennial reign is happening throughout that time period. It's a metaphorical. Unlike the post-millennials, they don't believe the church is going to like take the governments and rule them. And by take, I don't mean like a military coup. They'll just work their ways up through elections and that kind of stuff. They don't believe that. The number is symbolic, just like every other number in the book of Revelation, which is a very strong argument towards that view. And Satan... Um, Satan's being thrown into the abyss is symbolic also of his defeat at the cross. They would say that he is thrown symbolically into the abyss at the defeat of the cross because Paul says, death, where is your sting? Um, Satan no longer, and what Romans chapter 6 says, we're enslaved to sin and death. Chapter 7, he says, who will save me from this wretched man I am? And in chapter 8, he says, we are now made alive, free in the Holy Spirit. And Satan no longer controls us um, or has, we can give him power through our choices, but we're no longer forced to obey him or surrender to him anymore because we're in Christ. And so the number is symbolic and Satan is thrown in the abyss such that he can no longer deceive Christians, harm them spiritually, or hinder the spread of the gospel. So they would say he's not literally bound up in a way that he can't affect anybody. He's just metaphor. He's lost his power and influence over Christians that he can't harm you spiritually, take your salvation, he cannot um, stop the spread of the gospel, and, but he can still harm you physically. And he can, harm, he can harm those unbelievers spiritually because they are not in Christ. Therefore, they're not protected by him. His release from the abyss does not happen chronologically after his binding, but it's symbolic of the fact that he still has influence. So they would say his binding in the abyss is symbolic that he's lost power over Christians and hindering the gospel. But his unbinding is also symbolic of the fact that he still has some power in the world, specifically over the unbelievers, and to harm you physically through persecution and that kind of stuff. So that kind of makes sense? All of this is symbolic. So nothing is chronological here. It's all symbolic of, hey, by the way, Satan also doesn't control you in this time period. He can't harm you spiritually. He can't hinder the spread of the gospel. But he still has some power in the earth over the unbelievers. And that is seen in the beasts and Babylon. His binding of the abyss and his release are simultaneous realities of his power over the world. It does not mean that the influence of the demonic powers in the society have come to an end. Rather that Jesus is sovereign over Satan. Satan cannot prevent anyone from being drawn to Christ, nor can he delude and attack the covenant community of Yahweh. 
at the end of human history, Christ will come and bring the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. They would argue that nowhere in this chapter does it state that the thousand-year reign of Christ and the believers happens on earth. Rather, they are reigning from heaven after their death. This view has a lot of merit to it, especially because seeing it as a symbolic fits the rest of the previous chapters. They would say this is all symbolic. And nowhere does it say Christ literally came back. Now, I kind of would disagree with that and say 19. Nowhere in that chapter, you're right, but in 19. I see a lot of merit to this view. I see a lot of merit to this. And I personally are pre-millennialist, um, and I'll go into that view. But there's a part of me is like, somebody made a really good argument. I couldn't be convinced. Um, I, I'm willing to go back and forth. But I tend to stick with the pre-millennialist with this view. Premillennialists. This is where they believe everything that you just read should be understood the way that you read. Christ comes back literally in chapter 19, and he will literally and physically reign on earth, and that Satan will literally be thrown into the abyss for a thousand-year period after Jesus' second coming. Satan is sealed in the abyss literally and physically so that he cannot affect anyone on earth in any way during this time, believers or unbelievers. Within this view, some see this thousand-year reign as literal, that it will literally be a thousand years. So sometime in the future, Christ is coming back, and when he comes back, the clock starts ticking. You have thousand years of Christ reigning on earth without Satan on earth, and then at the end of the thousand years, Christ, the Satan will be released. Some will take this as metaphorical, that yes, he's literally reigning on earth, and yes, Christ is literally bound up, but the thousand-year reign is not literal. It just refers to a long period of time because the numbers in Revelation are never literal. I tend to take that view. I tend to stick with that. I got to be consistent that numbers are not literal. And so I stick with that. And thousands are used all throughout the Bible for just a lot. Um, thousands upon thousands of angels. He's not literally saying, do the math. He's just saying a lot. And so I tend to take that view. The latter is preferred based on how the numbers are used throughout Revelation. After this period of time, Satan is literally released to deceive the nations, followed by his final and complete defeat. Though most of Revelation so far has been recapitulation of tribulation history and seen as highly symbolic, there is a point at which the account switches to a future reality of the arrival of Christ, the end of Satan, and the kingdom of Yahweh established on earth. As already discussed, there is strong evidence for this happening in chapters 17 and 19 with the arrival of Christ, so it makes sense to see Revelation 20 as a future event after the arrival of Christ rather than a recapitulation. I believe, as I already mentioned, that the language strongly points to the fact that Christ has come back. Babylon has been defeated. No more. The beast has been thrown in the lake of fire. No more. Christ has come back and defeated the armies. It is hard to take that metaphorically. And the fact that that has happened, literally, you have to be consistent, and we have to keep moving forward. We have to keep moving forward. Now, this is where I, get, I, I really start confusing a lot of people. This is where people get really frustrated with me because premillennialism typically fits into a dispensationalism future seven-year view, and I'm not that. And I told you, I don't fit into any camp, and I frustrate the crap out of a lot of people because I fit into all the camps in some way or another because I really truly believe that good Christians who are very intelligent, why do we have so many views? They're, because there is things there that point to them. And, and, but rather than 
taking something and saying, let's build an entire theology around it. Let's just take each chapter for what it is. And then I'm not saying I'm right and everybody else is wrong because there's other people who disagree with me, but I've tried very hard to say, I don't care what your futurist view is. I don't care what your post-millennial view is. I don't care. I'm just going to try to stick with chapter by chapter by chapter and let the text tell me. I'm not saying I'm doing like nobody did it right until I came along. I'm not saying that. Please, I'm incredibly humble. I'm incredibly open-ended. Obviously, I believe I'm right because I did the research, but I believe I'm right in so far as there could be more that it could be convinced me. I don't know everything. There are other people out there who can make arguments I haven't heard yet. I haven't read every commentary yet. None of us know. Revelation's confusing. It's difficult. I'm willing to say, I mean, you've heard me already say, I don't know, I don't know multiple times. So I'm willing to be convinced of something different. Um, But I do have to have a view, obviously. I just can't say on everything. I, I just have a hard time seeing this as metaphorical, and here's why. Here's the reasons why I believe in premillennialism, even though I'm kind of open to an omelette. First, it's hard to interpret the binding of Satan as being symbolic or as having less influence in the world. Nowhere does Revelation make a distinction that he cannot harm the believers spiritually or impede the spread of the gospel, but that he can harm only non-believers. To the contrary, the Bible makes it clear that he can't make it difficult for people to respond to the gospel. Luke 8, chapter Um, Luke 8 verse 12 makes that clear. He can deceive the believers. As one looks at history and the current state of the world, it is clear that Satan has not been bound, but is deceiving the believers and non-believers. And there are passages here that give you that. I just, I look around the world and I just think there's just no way he's bound in any kind of a way. Metaphorically, the sex slave trade industry, genocide is still happening. The issues that are happening in our government I mean, I know I'm a finite being and I'm understanding this, but I just, when it says he's bound, I don't see any kind of binding. I don't see any kind of limit of power. And the Bibles make it very clear that he can deceive you as a believer. He can hinder the gospel. He can delude you and deceive you, all that kind of stuff. He can harm you physically. The only thing he can't do is force you to make choices against your will. That's basically it. I just don't see that. When demons were bound and locked in the abyss, they could not harm anyone. It says they were bound and locked and kept away from the world to be released for the appointed time. And only then, in chapter 9, were they actually able to harm the world. So they could not harm anyone in this way. They were released. Jude 6 states that they were locked away and bound as punishment until the judgment day. And in other Jewish writings, this is seen as a literal imprisonment. Everybody interprets this as a literal imprisonment. In fact, everyone interprets usually chapter 9 as a literal unimprisonment, a releasing. They cannot harm anyone. Um, Satan's being thrown into the abyss and locked away has to be seen in the same way. And this, that he cannot harm anyone. But this is not what we see in the present age. It does not make sense that the demons can be harm people while in the abyss. Sorry, it does not make sense that the demons cannot harm people while in the abyss, but Satan can. And it doesn't make sense that that is seen as literal by all Jews and all Christians, but this is seen as metaphorical just because it is. Second reason why I think the premillennialist view has strength. It says that Satan was locked and sealed in the abyss, which communicates an unbreakable bond. 
The word seal is used of the scroll, meaning its edicts could not be put into effect until the seals were open, which only the land was worthy of doing. The 144,000 were sealed by Yahweh and could not be harmed. The seven thunders were sealed and could not be known. This intensifies the idea of locking and sealing, which communicates an absolutely secure lock, which in it cannot have any effect on the outside world. I just think those languages of sealing and locking are too strong. Too strong. It's even used of us being sealed in the Holy Spirit by Paul when we become a believer. Third, if Revelation 20 is a recapitulation of tribulation history of Revelation 9, 6 through 19, that means the release of the demons from the abyss is happening at the same time as Satan's binding in the abyss. So does that make sense? If this is happening, if chapter 6 through 19 is happening at the same time as chapter 20, then that means when the demons are being released, it's happening at the same time that Satan's going in. Like, do they wave each other as they pass by? Like, have fun. It was horrible. Okay, like... I, it just doesn't make sense that it's being locked and unlocked at the same time. Yeah, that could happen, but you would think nine would tell you that Satan was passing them by as that was happening. And why release the demons and then bind Satan? That doesn't make sense. If you're unleashing the demons specifically to harm the world, then why is Satan getting bound at the same time? That does not make sense. What difference would it make to the vast majority of the world that demons are out and Satan's in? If Satan doesn't even know who we are and he's limited to one space and one person at a time, yes, he can move super fast, but he's still got to stay there long enough to influence you. And most of us, most of the 8 billion people here are being influenced by demons. Why does it matter to most of us? That the, I would rather have the demons in the abyss than Satan out, right? Because then it's one versus millions of them or trillions or whatever they are. Fourth, if Revelation 20 is recapitulation, recapitulation, then it should end with the coming of Christ again since he had already returned at 19. We should see another return at the end of chapter 20. If he returned in 19 and it's a recapitulation again, then we should be seeing it happening again. And we don't. Fifth, the idea of an intermediate period of the Messiah's reign on earth between the present age and the kingdom of Yahweh coming to earth appears frequently in Jewish writings meaning that the Jews often anticipated some literal multi-thousand-year reign of Christ, or the, what they would call the Messiah. This shows up a lot. When they read the First Testament, they saw a literal physical reign on earth. This fits that. These passages portray history as a cosmic week of symbolic thousand-year days. So there are passages where they literally talk about this week in a thousand-year reign kind of a way. But it's a week in a metaphorical sense. So they don't take it literally as a thousand years, but they do take it as a literal long period of time. And this shows up a lot. This is the audience that John is writing to. If you are meaning something different than what your audience has believed for thousands of years, then you need to do more clarification. This present age is 6,000 years followed by a 7,000-year reign. So they divide the whole of history into 6,000 years, and then the kingdom of God comes in the 7,000-year reign. There are some of these Jewish writings that have different number than 1,000, but the vision could still be drawing from this idea. A literal messianic reign of Christ would fulfill many of the prophecies of Jesus, being descendant of David, taking the throne on earth, which has seen its disciples' anticipation of Jesus as king. There are lots and lots of passages of Christ literally coming back and literally reigning 
on the earth over believers and unbelievers. This would be fulfilling that. Perhaps Christ is coming back for a thousand years with the believers and unbelievers to fulfill those prophecies. Then he deals with the unbelievers to then fulfill the no evil, no war, no sin prophecies as well. And so he's doing both of them. So it makes sense to see it in this way. And if you want those prophecies, you can go to my pre-exilic and post-exilic prophets site. And at the very end of both of those documents, I give you every single prophecy um, of Christ, like the references about him being king, about him being toning for sins, about him. I literally went through all the prophets and I just wrote them down as I found them, as I read them, and I compiled them all, all one place for you. For these five reasons, this is why I believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. I, and I think the last one is the strongest in a fulfilling all scripture kind of sense. The first four more have to do just with the immediate context of Revelation. But listen, most of my views of Revelation have come out of me studying the prophets. The prophets are not talked about a lot in churches um, because they are dense poetry and they're highly repetitive. Um, But when you roll up your sleeves and you get into it, they are highly rewarding and satisfying and enlightening um, for the greater scheme of Scripture. And this is where you get all of everything that God's been talking about gets bound up and neatly packaged in the prophets and sets the stage for the coming of Christ. And I really, truly believe that you cannot understand the Gospels and, and Revelation without understanding the prophets. And when you go through this, this idea of a literal Jesus reigning on earth over all people and all nations, even rebellious nations, is a very prominent theme. There's this idea that he reigns over all the nations for a while, and then he deals with the pagan evil nations and judges them. And I just think this, taking this more literally, I still believe it's metaphorical, like Satan's not literally a dragon, it's not literally a thousand years, um, but I do believe that this is something more concrete. And like I said, I'd rather err on the side of a literal reign than err on the side that he's not actually reigning on earth. I just feel like there's, there's fewer consequences for that view. Does that kind of make sense? Those are the three major views. Like I said, there are, there are two other drastically different views than what I take out there. But I think we often hear the left behind view a lot. It's good to have another perspective on things. And you're more than disagree with me. And I truly, truly, truly mean this. I still love you. You're still my brother and sister in Christ. I look forward in being in heaven with you. And however it pans out, this is, we're still in Christ and that kind of stuff. This is the view that I take. This is the view that I believe in. I'm open-handed. I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong. There's so many things that are still so complicated and I don't understand. And if you disagree with me, I still love you. You're my brother in Christ. I just hope you love me. So verse 4 says, Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls, or the spirits, of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony. Now, I believe beheaded is just a metaphor for anybody who just died in the faith not particularly like you died because you were a believer. Because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. This is where I believe 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is saying, the dead will rise first. 
These had not worshipped the beast or his image, and they refused to receive his mark on their foreheads and his hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In verse 4, during this thousand-year reign, the martyrs, those who have died, the witnesses, those witnesses of the believers who have died, who do not worship the beast, were resurrected and reigned with Christ during the thousand-year kingdom. The amillennials does not see this as a physical bodily resurrection. So this idea, remember the parable of the talents? You, that you were given talents and you were to manage them. And for those who managed them well were given more when the king returned. And those who didn't manage it well, they were taken away. And then later Jesus even says, you will rule over cities. The idea is those who have died in Christ and those who are with Christ, those who are alive with Christ don't need to be resurrected because they already are alive. But the believers who are left behind, both the dead who will be resurrected, and the believers who are still alive, they will reign in fulfillment of all those parables of the talents, um, this ruling over cities, the, the, tr- the treasures in the field, all that kind of stuff. They will rule on earth. Not in a dominionism as in we take the thrones and governments, um, but in that Christ came back and, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your talents. Here's your cities. And we were not going to rule them in a prideful kind of a way. Um, we're going to rule them because we're with Christ. And so we will become the governors of Christ, the ambassadors of Christ, so to speak, over all the nations. Now, the amillennialists, they don't see this as a literal body or a resurrection. And the only reason for this view of not seeing it as a literal body or resurrection is that they see the thousand-year kingdom as symbolic of the present age. Thus, they cannot see it as a physical resurrection. If this is already happening right now, then they can't see this as a literal physical resurrection of all the unbelievers because that didn't happen a long time ago. And we're not seeing it happen. And so then they don't see this as literally reigning with Christ. They just see as we reign with Christ by obeying him and doing things. But that's the only reason they deny a physical resurrection. The problem with this is that no place in the Bible does it ever describe being born again or dying, going to heaven as a resurrection. They would say this resurrection here is just symbolic of people dying, going to heaven. No, 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 no. Paul doesn't ever talk about that. It's, resurrection is always, 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 and I literally mean always, a physical bodily resurrection when it's talked about in the Bible. It never refers to dying and going to heaven. If Paul ever used resurrection, dying, going to heaven, that would confuse everything. Like when he says, our hope is found in the resurrection, and without that, our faith is dumb and futile and empty. That muddies the waters. Peter says that Christ was resurrected from the grave as the first fruits offering to God, and we are to follow him. Well, that's weird. That means that Jesus died and went to heaven. We're going to follow him. That means he didn't really come back from the grave, right? You, you, that word never, ever, ever is used of a spiritual dying going to heaven. So you cannot interpret that way, period. Revelation 24 clearly states that the believers who already died and had been dead came to life. That's not died and went to heaven. That's I'm dead. I've been dead for a while. I'm dead, dead, dead. And now I'm coming alive. John calls this the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until after the thousand-year reign. So the picture that's being painted here is that the believers are being raised from the grave in the first resurrection. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then the unbelievers are raised from the grave in the second resurrection. 
And whether you've ever realized it or not, everybody gets resurrected one day. The difference is the believers will be resurrected physically and they will remain on earth for all eternity without sin and without evil and without war and without death. And the unbelievers will be resurrected physically, but they will be thrown into the lake of fire and they will live there physically and spiritually for all eternity. God created you to be body and spirit together. And you will be that for all eternity. The question is with whom? With Christ on earth or with all the wicked nations in the lake of fire? And we'll talk about the lake of fire more when we get to the end of chapter 20. But these are the two resurrections. The first is the believers who reign with Christ. And the second is the unbelievers for the judgment seat right before they go into the lake of fire. And I don't know why we don't often talk about everybody getting resurrected. Everybody will. So the question is, will those who are alive just be instantly like resurrected in their brand new glorious body, that kind of stuff? Or will they just remain as who they are? I don't know. I tend to lean towards the fact that they won't, but I don't know. I really have to plead total ignorance on that. Are there lots of different views? Can somebody confidently tell you? Yeah, but I can't. Um, I'd rather just say I'm not confident. I don't really know. At the same time, I'm saying, like, I feel like the evidence strongly points to this, and I'm sure of this and sure of this. There's still a lot of things, like, I still don't know. There's still a lot of things I don't know how this is going to work. I mean, like the seven thunders. What, what, what did he say there? Like, was that, was that everything we've been looking for? We're post-trib, people. Don't seal that up. I mean, I don't know. Like, there's so much that I still don't know how the mechanic. I mean, that's a valid question. It should be asked. Um, but I don't know, and there's a lot of that I don't know here. This also matches up with the fact that the first death is your physical death, and the second death is the lake of fire. And it says those who are resurrected, the second death has no hold over them. So those who are experienced the first resurrection, the second death has no hold over them, which means if you're in the first wave resurrection, you're not going to the lake of fire because you're in Christ and you're sealed. But if you're in the second wave resurrection, the second death has a hold over you. You're going to die again. But remember, death is not physically losing your body. Death is separation. All throughout the Bible, death is separation. So when heaven and earth were separated, death. When your body is separated from your body, death. When you get divorced, death of a relationship. When your dream is crushed, the death of a dream. You're separated. That's how we use death even in our culture today as separation. And so that's the idea. It is difficult to know what the text really means about reigning with Christ. That's where I got to plead total ignorance. What does it really mean that we're going to take thrones and rule with Christ? Um, what are we vice regents? Are we governors? Are we little mayors? Is it the really, how obedient did you have to be? And what, are we going to be completely without sin in that moment? Or is that later after the judgment seat? How long is this period going to reign? Like, why is Christ doing all these details? Like, that's where it's like question mark, question mark. The actual mechanics of how all this works were given one sentence. And I just really have no idea how the mechanics are going to play out. That doesn't mean this view is wrong, because the other views don't know how all the mechanics work out either. Let me paint the picture a little bit more clear. This, this is the picture that we seem to be getting if we take a premillennial view. The picture is that 
all the powerful kings and generals that oppose Christ are gone off the earth. All the unbelievers who fought with these armies are gone off the earth and dead. We're going to start from the bottom and go up. Babylon, the institution of media and propaganda that lures you in is dead and gone. There's no more lure, seduction to join the dark side, Luke. That's all gone. The, the beast, the beast and the second beast, or the beast and the prophet, the false prophet, they're gone in the lake of fire. Satan is bound up. So that's what's gone. That's what's been taken away and removed off the earth. What seems to be left behind is the believers, those who've been resurrected in the first wave as believers. Now, here's the question mark. Are there unbelievers who did not join in these wars that are just everyday normal people, your next door neighbors, who are still on earth and we're ruling over them. That seems to be the implication. If you're ruling, you're ruling over somebody. And so we're going to rule over these unbelievers that were not powerful enough or anti-God enough to fight against them. But they still have said, I prefer my religion or my belief. And I'm pretty content with that. Or I never heard of Christianity yet, so I didn't know that was an option. Um, they seem to be on earth. Or were they all taken and thrown in the lake of fire too? That doesn't seem to be the implication. Okay, when we get to the end of chapter 20, we get the implication that nobody's gone, no human has gone to the lake of fire. So that would imply that either all the unbelievers are either dead, all of them, and it's only believers on earth, or only those who rebelled against Christ in chapter 19 are dead, and other unbelievers like your next door neighbor are still there on earth. At the end of a thousand years, it doesn't matter what view you take on that, as whether all unbelievers are gone or just some unbelievers are gone. Because after a thousand years or a really long period of Christians giving birth and having children, does every child accept Christ? No. So by the end of it, there will be unbelievers. And how do we know that? Because a whole bunch of people will try to kill Christ at the end of it. Either there's unbelievers going into it that will eventually produce children, and those children will gain power over time and then say, I actually am willing to try to kill Christ and take his throne down. Or... There's no unbelievers, but the Christians will give birth to children, and all of them will choose to accept Christ. And they will then, at the end of a thousand years, they will decide that they actually are antichrist enough to try to kill them. The implication is everything goes on the way that it normally was, except that certain entities of evil power are bound up or dead or gone. But it doesn't say anything changed with us in our nature unless you were resurrected from the grave. And so there seems to be this hint that human nature is still there, either in the believers who were not resurrected because they were already still alive, or unbelievers are still on the earth because there has to be a human nature that is evil and sinful enough to try to kill Christ at the end. Does that make sense? Other than that, I don't know anything more. That, though, that's like, that seems, seems to be the picture that is being painted. And deduction has to tell me if there are people who are antichrist enough that they're literally going to try to kill him at the end of a thousand years after he's been reigning perfectly on earth for a thousand years and they still hate him enough to kill him, then human nature and sin and evil is still in the world during this time period. Is it because of unbelievers having kids who do not accept Christ? Is it because there are some unbelievers that were still left alive or a mixture of both? I don't really know, but it has to happen somehow. That's the most I can say. Well, what does the reign of the Christians look like? Don't know.
I just know that this is what it's saying. 